Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. All right. Good morning. Yeah. If you are a guest, I don't normally wear a tie and I don't normally tuck my shirt in, but Jesus got out of the grave. So I suppose I can do both. Right. So there you go. In accordance with the prophecy. All right. Hey, um, as Brent mentioned, um, actually, like, I, I sat there this morning, stood there during worship thinking, I almost don't need to preach. We're pretty much preaching the message of Easter through these songs that the worship team chose for us. Like, that's Easter. That's hope. Um, and I'm still going to preach the message because I prepared for it. So, you know, don't want to waste all that time. So having said that, um, this morning... Uh, we have titled our message, uh, Finding Hope in a Risen Savior. Finding Hope in a Risen Savior. And we're going to kind of unpack that as we go through the morning. But I want to start with that word hope, because I believe that hope is not just a, a, like a, a, a real need, but actually increasingly a perceived need, a felt need throughout our world, throughout our nation, throughout our city. And there is a pressing need for hope. And uh, some of the things that, that historically people have put their hope in, I think even going back to the, the uh, latter half of the 20th century, there was a perception, at least in the Western world, maybe not everywhere, but at least in the Western world, there was a perception that the world was getting better and that every generation was going to have it better than their parents did. And that is increasingly, that, that is melting away. Because we're being confronted by the reality that some of the things that we had put our hopes in aren't capable of sustaining that hope. So think about this. We, uh, we put our hope in science. Right? We hope in, that as we discover, um, as our, our scientists discover more and more cures, as we look at how to address the, the evils and the things that, that plague society, that, that, we're, that things are getting mastered and, and getting better. And then over the last two years, we've been confronted with a pandemic that science has been, you know, very limited in, in their ability to address, hasn't been able to protect everyone from it, and maybe we're still in that. Maybe science was actually responsible for it. The verdict's out, we don't know. But our confidence in science to protect us from the fallenness of our world has been challenged. We've been, uh, our, our sense of hope in social progress has been challenged. You think about the fact that, that uh, many people would hope that as we learn about what it means to be a better human, a better person, as we educate one another, and we, as we say, this is what's okay, this is what's not okay, that as we just draw those lines that we're increasingly learning how to be a better society, better humans. And then right now we're watching as on the other side of the world, there are devastating things, horrific things, happening in the Ukraine, and we know it's happening. We're not finding out about it years after the fact. We know it's happening right now, and we seem powerless 
as mankind to stop it. That's a problem. Like there's history books that are going to be written about what's happening right now and about the fact that we weren't able to stop it. We put our hope in technology, that, you know, and, and by far, I mean, the, the technology uh, spike that has happened over the last you know, 50 years is just amazing. The things that we know, the things that we have access to. And yet, as much as technology has done for us and giving us the ability to do things like go where no man has gone before, which isn't just like science fiction anymore. Like, there's, it's amazing. We've got civilians, you know, going to space now. And as much as technology has increased, and for all the benefits it gives us, it's also exposed us. And it's also empowered evil in a new way. So that one of the greatest fears we have right now as a nation is people exploiting technology for evil. And that's one of our greatest fears. So all that to say, and I, I didn't, gosh, if you're depressed, Mission accomplished. No. No, but we have to be real, right? We have to acknowledge the challenges. And here's what it exposes. It exposes that the world is looking for, is there real hope? Is there something that's capable of sustaining our hope? And I want to suggest that there is. I want to start by defining a little bit. I think on the one hand, hope can have many connotations. Right? Hope can be as, uh, it can be as, as a, the equivalent of wishful thinking. So, I don't know if anybody read this story. Uh, I think this was not last week, but the week before. There was a woman in California who uh, was purchasing some lottery tickets. Anybody read that story? A couple of you did. I see some nodding heads. Okay, so here's this woman's in California. She's buying, uh, she's standing at a, a grocery store vending machine for lottery tickets. And she, she puts $40 in. I don't know if it was cash or debit card, whatever. She puts $40 in, and she's trying to decide what she's going to buy. She's anticipating purchasing several small tickets. So probably like eight $5 tickets or something like this. And, and she's getting ready to do it, and a stranger, a rude stranger, walks past her and bumps her arm and forces her to pick a $30 ticket that she had no intention of picking. And she's angry because how rude... And she turns around to see who bumped her, and he just walks off without even acknowledging that he just bumped into her. And so she's frustrated, and she's like, man, I can't believe this. This is so rude. And so now she can't buy all the tickets she was planning to buy. Her, her ratios of winning go down. And so she buys two small tickets in addition to the, the $30 one she had to buy. She goes out to her car. She scratches the tickets. And guess what? The $30 ticket was a $10 million top winner. Right Now, if you're hearing that story for the first time or if you read it last week, I suspect you have the same response that I had. Like something in me went, oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> I hope a rude stranger bumps me. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And here's what I suspect. I suspect that Anybody who buys a lottery ticket and scratches the numbers or, or checks the numbers to see if they won uh, cherishes a glimmer of hope that this one's a winner, that lightning might strike in their life. And here's the tension. A glimmer of hope that they might be the lucky one and also this reality check, that this lurking awareness that the odds are incredibly improbable that they could ever win, Right? So that's, that's an expression of hope. That, what we just described there, that there's a, a chance, it's a one in a million, one in a billion chance that I could be the winner, but that's, there's still hope, right? 
That's a definition of hope. The biblical understanding, the biblical meaning when we talk about hope is something that's quite different from that. Okay? Set aside that as an idea of hope. That's not what we're talking about in Scripture when we talk about hope. Biblical hope is not grasping at an infinitely small statistical chance that you might be the one lucky winner. Instead, it's defined as anticipation with confidence or certainty. Let's put the definition up here. Anticipation with confidence or certainty. Okay? The person who buys a lottery ticket has hope or anticipation, but no confidence or certainty. Biblical hope is something quite different. Here's an example of, so, so biblical hope is expecting something that is not fully actualized or fully realized yet. That's the key word when we talk about biblical hope. It's not fully actualized yet, but with a certainty that it will in fact come to pass. So here's an example of Christian hope from Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul wrote in Romans 8, he said, he's writing to Christians of the community of faith in Rome. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. Okay, just hold on to that phrase, when we were saved. We're going to come back to this at the end of the morning. But we were given this hope when we were saved. Now, if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. That's the kind of hope that's embodied in the Easter story. I, I believe that's the kind of hope that our world is longing for, personally, collectively. I think, believe we're longing for that kind of hope. This morning, here's what I want to do. I want to give you an equation. Uh, and it's a formula for finding that hope that makes it available to every single person. Okay, not the one in a millionth off chance, not the, not the one in a billionth off chance, but hope that makes it available to every single person. It looks like this. The equation for hope is love plus power equals hope. Love plus power equals hope. Now, all three parts of that equation are found in the Easter story that we, that the Easter story that we're, you know, today we're, we're remembering with followers of Jesus around the world, followers of Jesus throughout the ages we gather to remember this story, and all three parts are found right there. So let's start with the love part. Love plus power equals hope. The love part of the hope equation is found in what Jesus experienced in the final days and hours leading up to his uh, resurrection. So if you participated in our, our Good Friday service, if you were here on Good Friday, uh, or if during the week you came in and you, you walked through our Stations of the Cross, we've got these stations that are depicted back here all culminating in the 12th station over here on stage. But we, we walked through the story, and what I want to suggest to you today that you may not have experienced either Friday night or if you went through the stations is that every single one of those events, everything depicted in one of those symbols is the embodiment of love. You may not have thought of it that way, when encountering the story, or, or, even, or if you're maybe you weren't here, but you're familiar with the story, maybe if you read the story, if you visualize it, if you consider, like, what, what must that have been like? It probably doesn't bring up feelings of love. 
If you think about someone who was betrayed, this is what Jesus experienced. The final, final hours of his earthly life, he was betrayed, falsely accused. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was tortured. He was stripped. And then he was executed by crucifixion. Okay? Thinking about that story, remembering that story, doesn't immediately awaken feelings of love, does it? I would, I would suspect that most people encountering the story of crucifixion, Christians included, that the type of feelings that are awakened by that are feelings like dread, pity, revulsion, anger, sadness, even nausea, grief. I think those are the more likely feelings. But set that aside. Set aside the feelings that we bring to it and consider what Jesus said. Jesus said that he was not a victim of all the horrific things that he experienced. Instead, he was a willing participant who could have made it all stop with a single word. Listen to what he said to Peter when Peter attempted to defend Jesus and to prevent what was about to happen. Matthew 26. Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize, here's the important part, and this, this symbolizes everything that's about to happen. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Previously, Jesus had already said to his disciples, and in a, in a moment where he was coaching them about the future, about what it was going to look like on the other side of eternity, when, or on the other side of the resurrection when he was gone, he said, I want you to practice loving one another in the way that I love you. And then he defined what that love would look like. Listen to this, John 15, 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So what Jesus did what he endured is depicted in all of that symbology. He did out of love. <laughs> Jesus backed his words to the 12 and to Peter with his actions. So at the moment, as we, as we engage the story of Maundy Thursday, which is the, uh, the arrest, the, uh, the beginnings of the trials, everything that happened on Friday with the, the betrayal, the trials, the, the mocking, the beating, the cruise. In all of that, Jesus didn't resist. He did not resist. He did not defend. He did not retaliate, even verbally. He actually just endured each and every step all while praying forgiveness and mercy for the very people who were assaulting him. Who does that? Who prays forgiveness and mercy while being assaulted? He was actively loving those who were actively hating. And then here's the question. We have to ask this question, why? Why would he do that? Even, even if he couldn't actually make it stop, one would think he would protest against it. He would defend his innocence. He would say, hey, I'm an innocent person. But Jesus' claim was that he was choosing this because this is what it took to give hope. Scripture tells us that he did this out of love because this was the way to rescue mankind 
and actually all of creation, not just people, but all of creation from the consequences of our rebellion against our creator. Consequences that we daily encounter in the form of sickness, death, war, hatred, injustice, poverty, violence, fear, depression, despair, guilt, shame. And the list could just go on and on. And above all, the general sense of being spiritually disconnected. We don't always name it, but there's this sense that we're just spiritually disconnected. We don't know what this life means. We're disconnected from our creator, from the one who made us. Well, here's what scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that Jesus brought peace between God and humanity, between the creator and his creation through what he did on the cross. Here's Colossians 1.19. It puts it this way. For God, in all of his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means, and this is the important part, by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Over the last 2,000 years, since Jesus walked on this planet, his followers, Christians, theologians, we've put forward various theories trying to understand and wrap our, our human minds around what it was that he accomplished on the cross. Why was it necessary? How did that work? We call them atonement theories. We're trying to understand how did what's described there in Colossians, how did that actually affect change for creation? And the reality is we're trying to wrap our human minds around something that's beyond our, our grasp. And so that's not, it's a discussion for another day. It's not a place we're going to go today. But all of those atonement theories, they share a basic core that's very simple. It's not, it's not easy, but it's simple. The core is this. Jesus died for our sins in our place. He died for us. He died the death we should have died, would have died, in order to take our place. Today we're focused on Jesus' explanation that this was the only way to rescue us from the realities of sin and death and the fact that he was willing to do that. This is the only way, and I'm willing to do it. That's why it's love. We're going to quickly recap what Jesus experienced in those final hours. If you were here on Good Friday or throughout the week and we, we went through these stations, we're going to recap those once again, but I want you to listen to it with different ears. Or maybe you weren't here and so this is your first chance to, to hear it this weekend. But I want you to, to experience these stations as, as an expression, as the personification of Jesus' love for you. This is something that Jesus willingly chose to endure out of love. Love that was universal and cosmic, it was for all of creation, and love that was incredibly particular, it was for you. Love that is at once incredibly expansive and also very narrow. Jesus did this out of love for all creation, and he did this for you. According to Jesus' own testimony, if we believe in what he claims, he claims that, that he was not a victim he was a willing sacrifice. 
That means that what held him on the cross were not the nails that the Romans drove through his hands and his feet. That's not what held him on the cross. It was love for you, for me. This is love. He prays, but his bone-weary, exhausted followers sleep. Let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. At last he comes. Get up, my betrayer is here. Like prowling wolves, an angry horde of teeth and spittle. And here it comes, a kiss on the cheek, a greeting for his rabbi. All fraud, all charade. Friend, do what you came here to do. Thirty pieces of silver, a goodly price that was paid. The guards take Jesus, the disciples cut and run. False accusations, lying testimony. Questions pressed under oath. I adjure you by God most high, are you the son of God? He speaks truth. Truth labeled blasphemy. A lamb among lions, a calf thrown to wolves. Crucify! 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 A crown of thorns, a purple robe. Hail, King of the Jews! All hail! The spite of darkened humanity tearing into his flesh with each lash. A cross is born, its weight pressing into his already battered and bloodied flesh. Each step heavier than the last. It was our pain he carried as he bore that cross. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. Each step, exhausting. Each step, harder than the last. He stumbles. He falls. Once. Twice. Strength gone. Bones dry like a pot shirt. This time when he falls, he doesn't get up. A stranger, a passerby coming in from the countryside, pressed into service. Simon walks alongside Jesus, shouldering the load along the trail of tears and sweat and blood. Now they reach it, Golgotha, Skull Place, Death Hill. He's stripped of all, clothes, mantle, dignity. All his bones are on display. He is stripped of all but the accusation made against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Self-righteous scoffers circle like vultures, mocking. Abba, where have you gone? Father, why have you abandoned me? He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we are healed. But now, for him, only darkness, as creation itself, hides its face. Torturously, he lifts himself up for one last breath. Father, receive my spirit. It is finished. The earth shook, the rocks split, the veil torn, the tombs opened. His executioners stand in awe. 
truly, this was the Son of God. His bloody ordeal done, his spirit departed. His battered body remains to be buried. Linen is prepared, spices are brought. A garden tomb is secured, there to lay the fallen Son of God. Sealed with a huge stone, like a giant period. Full stop. The end. On the third day, just as he said, the stone is rolled away. He is not here, he is risen. See the place where they laid him. Confusion, fear, flight, joy, disbelief. The Lord is risen indeed. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you did not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor did you let your faithful one see decay. The Lord is risen indeed. That last 30 seconds brings the second part of the equation in. The first part, everything that Jesus endured in that first 11 stations or events that he experienced, that's, that was an expression of love. But then comes number 12, which is power. We're trying to turn to our text. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24 today. And as we resume, it is now sunrise on uh, Sunday morning, Easter morning. Uh, Sabbath has ended, which means that the women who uh, have been Jesus' followers and have, were, were wanting to attend to his body and give it the most dignified, proper burial that they could, they were limited to doing that on Good Friday because uh, Sabbath was, was setting in and they, they had to just hastily put his body in a tomb. So now it's Sunday morning and they're, they're going to attend to his body. We're going to pick up in chapter 24 of Luke and I'm just going to read this straight through. So... Um, Stick with me, and then we'll talk about what it means. Chapter 24, verse 1. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified. And they bowed with their faces to the ground. And the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And that he would rise again on the third day. And then they remembered. I, I, I highlighted a few things and bolded a few things. So just kind of pay attention to those two themes here. Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men. So they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and he ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered and saw the empty linen wrappings that he went home again, wondering what had happened. And that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. 
but God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders, they handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. And then some women from our, our group of followers were at the tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran to see, and sure enough, the body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he was going to go on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them, and as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. It was a seven miles, by the way. That's longer than a 10K. <laughs> within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me. Make sure that I'm not a ghost. Ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. So they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms, that it must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. 
It was also written that his message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is, this is, this is the part about being saved, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. This is God's word. As we come back to our hope equation and we look at part two, I just want to put a pin right there in that idea of love. Because if you want the kind of hope that anticipates with confidence and assurance, you have to begin by understanding what motivated Jesus to willingly endure the cross and everything that it entailed. He did it out of love for you. His love for you, listen to this, his love for you is a factual reality that was established before you were even born. Scripture tells us that before the foundations of the world, not just going back to his earthly life and resurrection and death and everything there, going back to the very foundations of the world, he chose you. His love is a factual reality. It was established before you were even born. You did not earn it. You don't deserve it. You cannot buy it. You can only believe it and receive it. That's love. The second part of the equation is power. So love plus power equals hope. Here's where the power comes in. Something happened on that first Easter that introduces to the human experience a power that is the basis for hope that is certain. Because what happened to the tomb that Easter sunrise was not a one in a million or a one in a billion, once-off chance that just happened to one person. It wasn't the, the one in a billion resurrection. It was the first of many countless resurrections. You see, here's the thing. There's several ways that we can look at Jesus' resurrection. If you believe it, many of us in this room do or joining here online, but you can see it simply as a proof, a proof that Jesus was really who he claimed to be. In other words, that he was God becoming man, entering into the creation, that he was the creator entering into his creation, and the proof is when he was resurrected from the dead. That's Pretty neat trick, right? And, and although other people have come back from death and we've got, you know, a, a few stories of that peppered throughout history, nobody's done it in this way, in the way that they predicted their own death and then accomplished it three days later. And not only that, it's the type of body he came back with. We, we, we saw that in the passage. So it's a neat trick, but if we limit it to just that, if we limit it to a, a proof that he really was who he said he is, well, that limits his resurrection to just something that happened once 2,000 years ago. It was the winning lottery ticket. Good for him. It doesn't give us hope for our lives today. Additionally, we can see it as a sign. We can see it as a sign that everything else he said is true and that we should then listen to what he said. So uh, we should obey what he instructed we should live by his rules. He clearly knows more about this life than we do. And that's true. Right? We should listen to what he said. We should obey his rules. But if we limit what happened on the cross and at the empty tomb to just that, it limits his impact to just instructions about this life. Not, not a power source inside of us for transformed lives. It's just instructions. 
Alternatively, there's, there, there's those who, who don't think that his resurrection really happened. They would say it was, a, it was a hoax. It was a fable, a fabrication made up by uh, followers who couldn't accept the end of their Messiah's life. There's people who've said that from the very beginning. People have said it was a hoax. If you believe that it's a hoax, and here's the challenge. 2,000 years later, we can't prove scientifically one, on one side or the other that he was resurrected or was not. That cannot be scientifically proven in the same way that we can prove the molecular structure of water or something like that. Right? There's things that we can prove. This, we're going to have to take on the evidence of what we, can, uh, what we know. Here's what we know. We know that Jesus didn't just appear once as an apparition. Remember, he's, he's very clear. He's like, I am not a ghost. Touch me. Put your hands in the holes. Watch me eat a fish. <laughs> right? Ghosts can't do those. You can't touch a ghost. They can't eat anything. And it wasn't just happened once. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared over the course of 40 days. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to people in small groups, and he appeared at one point to a gathering of 500 people all at once. And at the time that 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 letter was written to the Corinthians, it was only like 20 years after the resurrection, and Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, look, you can go out and you can find those people. Most of all those people are still alive, and they will tell you that they touched him, they listened to him, they saw him, they ate with him, and they were so persuaded the people, that first group of many, many eyewitnesses, they were so persuaded that they had seen death reversed and resurrection life burst through that they lived the rest of their lives recklessly. They didn't care what happened to these earthly bodies because they knew there was something on the other side of this. And so people like his little brother, James, his little brother went from being a doubter because how many of you have an older brother you think, yeah, I should worship him as God? <laughs> I have an older brother that I respect. I don't worship him as God. His little brother, James, went on to, be, he, went, he moved by his encounter with resurrected Jesus, turned him from a doubter into a pastor who said, who told everybody, this, this was the son of God. There is resurrection life in him. The Apostle Paul, when he, was, when he first had an encounter with resurrected Jesus, he was known as Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was so antagonistic towards Christian faith and followers of Jesus that he was traveling the country voraciously, hunting them down and killing them. Arresting them, killing them. He was like Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. I want a hard target search of every outhouse, hen house. Like, he was that guy intently searching for Christians. And he had an encounter with resurrected Jesus and he became a pastor who was persecuted for his faith. Okay, that kind of, what, what had people have to experience to, to make that kind of reversal? The 11 disciples who had walked with Jesus their whole life, the rest of them, they, they, they gave up their lives as martyrs because they knew there was resurrection life on the other side of this. I won't deny Jesus because he didn't deny me. And, they, and, and at, at pain of death, they held to their story. So if you choose to say it's a hoax that his, that his followers came up with, you've got to explain that. That's how they live the rest of their lives. 
That's where the power part of our equation comes in. Here's what, here's what Jesus said about power. Jesus promised the same power that raised him from the dead to a new and incorruptible body. It wasn't just, he didn't just get the old body back. This was a new body. You notice that, right? He could cloak himself, right? He was recognizable when he wanted to be, but he could also be in places where he didn't walk through the door. And yet he had a material body. He wasn't a ghost that just showed up in the room. I mean, this is a resurrected body. Never again would his, with the body that he was resurrected with, never again would it experience decay, death, depression, everything that is part of living in this fallen world, he will never again experience. Here's what it means. It means that the powers of the world to come were breaking into the world that is. With Jesus' resurrection, it was not a freak one-time occurrence, not the once-off lottery ticket. It was the beginning of a restoration of what was lost in the garden. What our first parents gave away when they rebelled against our creator. Jesus' resurrection is more than a proof. It's more than a sign. Here's, listen to this. It was the first installment. It was the down payment with a divine promise of so much more to come. Jesus' resurrection is described in the Bible as a first fruit. Most of us don't have, that's not a common language for us, first fruits. But that's what he's, his resurrection is described as the first fruit. Meaning, here's what it means. He's the first of a harvest in which there is much more to come. First fruits were indicators of what the rest of the harvest would be like. And so Jesus' resurrected body is the first of countless more to come. That's why his followers were so reckless with this tent. Because they knew there was more. It means no matter what happened to them, everything is going to be okay. Because there's something on the other side of this. Jesus' resurrection means that we can have certain hope, what the Bible calls living hope, that is not rooted in scientific advancements. It's not rooted in social progress. It's not rooted in technology. It's rooted in a power that has already manifested once in the middle of human history and is waiting again as a promise for all who put their faith in him. If Jesus' resurrection really happens, here's what it means. It means, to paraphrase author and pastor Tim Keller, it means that everything else is going to be okay. It means that the powers of the age to come, the restoration of the world to come, have broken into this present world. And the very same power that raised Christ from the dead, that is going to completely cleanse the world of suffering and of evil and of death at the end of time, everything that we see that, that we long to be different, the same power that raised him from the dead that is going to make everything new can be alive inside of you. It's already arrived in the power of the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a first installment of more to come. Let's go back to that final paragraph. Luke 24, 47 through 49. It was also written, this is Jesus talking, that this message must be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for who? Not one in a million, not one in a billion, for all who repent. You're witnesses. And now I will send you the Holy Spirit, just as my father promised. Two things that we end with. Jesus talked about the actions that they would take 
and the actions that he would take. There's this interaction between earth and heaven. And we saw that in the passage. What I, when I bolded and highlighted those things, I, I bolded the actions that people took. The, the women, they went to the tomb. They were in the, even in their despair, they, they, they moved. They, they went towards the tomb. When they were told the truth, of, they were told the story that he was back, they, they ran back to the other disciples. They ran back to the community of faith. Peter, when he heard about it, he ran to the tomb. There's lots of action. The guys that were heading to Emmaus, they were leaving Jerusalem. They were just going back to their old life because it, apparently everything had, had fallen apart. And they're just sauntering back to Emmaus. And when they encounter the resurrected Jesus, what do they do? They turn and ran that very night, ran all the way back to Jerusalem. They ran back to the community of faith instead of continuing to to live in isolation and disappointment. They ran back. Those are some of the actions that are taken by the people. But I also highlighted in yellow all the things that Jesus did. We We see that minds were opened, that hearts were strangely warmed. Didn't our hearts burn within us? Something happened that they didn't make happen. There was this divine interaction. And the weight of this equation in terms of there was the part that the people did and the part that God did, clearly what God did has the heavier weight. It says their eyes were opened. Their minds were open to understand the scripture. Things that they, didn't, things that they had read before, but they just didn't get suddenly made sense. It was like the light bulb went on and they got it. That was a divine interaction. To finish our equation this morning, love plus power equals hope. If you want to find hope this morning, it requires two things. It does require, like it did for them, personal action, and it requires divine interaction. So let me give you a couple, couple options this morning. I was praying about this this week, and I, I was praying through that passage. Almost chose the shorter. There's, there's shorter versions of the resurrection. But Mike... Pastor Mike had already picked that one, and I'm obedient. But you know what I saw in that one that's unique to that passage? I saw followers of Jesus running towards community, running towards the spiritual family to be on mission together, forsaking their despair, forsaking their unbelief, and saying, if this is true and we're supposed to be on mission together and be witnesses to the rest of the world, it's going to take us coming together. And Easter is a time when people who uh, don't attend Christian faith community throughout the, the year, people show up on Christmas and Easter. If you're here, I'm so glad you're here today. And, and I don't want to in any way diminish the fact that you're here. I do want to challenge you. I think you may be being called to return to the community of faith. To, to not live in, and you may have experienced disappointment in the community of faith. You've, things happen. Things happen that leave us discouraged, that leave us bitter, that leave us frustrated, that leave us in despair. But understand this, the community of faith is Jesus' chosen instrument to be a witness to the world. So let's make it better. Let's do it better. Let's embrace our, our, our humanity and the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us and the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now transforming us into his image right now, here on earth. 
We're not waiting to eternity to become more like him. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead that is now at work in us if you are a follower of Jesus. And so there is hope for us to live like him, even though we haven't done it perfectly. So some of us are being called back to the community of faith. And I just want to say, if that's you, if, if your heart is strangely burning this morning, if your mind is, is, your eyes are opened or your mind is opened in some new way, I just want to invite you to vote with your feet. Whether that's here or with another expression of the body of Christ, we need one another. We don't grow and we don't accomplish the mission apart from community. Secondly, there's the opportunity to respond for um, what Jesus said here, what, the one who, who believes and is baptized will be saved is, is the language that scripture uses. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, I'm gonna invite you to stand. I'll just telegraph. Here's the, the final moments here. The worship team is gonna lead us in a last song as we prepare for baptism. But if you're here this morning, I want to say this, what Jesus did, what he made available is in fact for everyone. It's not just for a few lucky winners. It's for anyone who will receive it. And it must be received. There was an action that each person in that story took they moved towards him, and then they experienced the supernatural power of what he did. And so this morning, I'll just give you a couple ways that it could look for you to move towards him. One, in just a moment, I'm going to invite you, if you want to respond, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand right where you are, and we'll pray for you right where you are. Our, our ushers have a little welcome packet that they'll bring by, and it just says, hey, you know, here's, here's some next steps as a follower of Jesus. And so I'm going to invite you to do that. We'll pray for you right where you are. And then if you'd like, you can also be baptized this morning. If you're not ready for that, you don't have to do both. To do the first doesn't mean you have to be baptized as well. But we have some that have already said, hey, I'm looking forward to baptism and what perfect time to do it than Easter. Here's what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes that we're being cleansed and forgiven of our sin. Remember, what is the atonement theory? It means that Jesus did that for our sins in our place. Baptism is a step of faith where we say, Jesus, I know you're washing me of my sin. I want to receive that. It's the thing that you do that opens it up for him to do what only he can do. Additionally, it's, it, it, it's participating in his death and his resurrection. It symbolizes death and resurrection that he made possible for you. So if you didn't come this morning prepared to be baptized, again, like Pastor Brent said, we do have t-shirts and towels we prepared for you. And so in a moment while we sing, uh, if you would like to be baptized, I'm just going to ask you to make your way to the table that's over here underneath the, the screen. And Kim will be there. She'll give you the t-shirt, the towel. We'll get your name and a name tag. Our prayer team will pray for you. And then we're just going to do it. We're going to baptize right here, right now. Um, but before we do that, I just want to give the opportunity. If you need hope that is certain, if you don't know what's on the other side of this life for you, if you're living in any sort of despair because of the reality of the world we live in, and you need hope that even if bad things happen, everything is going to be okay. I just want to invite you to raise your hand right where you are. 
and we were going to pray for you where you are if that's you would you put your hand up and uh, if you're standing next to someone who has their hand up would you just reach out and put your hand on their shoulder this is the church being the church we welcome one another into the community of faith and if you've got your hand up we're going to have ushers are going to come around they're going to bring a little welcome packet And I'm going to pray for you right now. And if you agree with me with this prayer, this is as simple as it is. It's not a perfect prayer. It's not a, not, the words aren't magic. But if you mean this sincerely with your heart, then you have a hope that's certain. You just cashed in the ticket. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as we remember what you accomplished 2,000 years ago, that it isn't just about something that happened then, but it's something that is still happening, that, that we can look forward to, we can anticipate with hope, with certainty, that regardless of what happens this side of eternity, that eternal life, you've won. You have won. And so Lord, for those who are, are raising their hand right now, maybe for the first time, or maybe coming back to you after a time of, of running, They lift their hands with a small step of an action. Jesus, would you do what only you can do? Would you place your spirit inside of, of people, inside of hearts, cause hearts to burn with love for you, with transformation? Come and do what only you can do. As we sing this song, I invite you to make your way up front. If you need to go change your clothes, you can do that. Um, here's how the rest of the morning looks. If you're not being baptized, you're still a participant because we as the body of Christ, as a spiritual family, we get to cheer on those that are doing this. And so this is not a spectator sport. The band's going to be leading, but, but every time somebody comes in and out of this water, every time they come out, we are going to cheer like rabid... Cleveland Browns football fans. Because this is resurrection life. This is hope breaking through right now. Let's worship. Thank you, Jesus. Now let's sing this together, church. Jesus, you've won me. Oh, Jesus, you have won me. You have broken every chain with love. And mercy, you have triumphed over death, and you are worthy of glory and praise. Oh, we sing it again, Jesus, you've won. Oh, Jesus, you have won me. You have broken every chain. Yes, you have, Lord, and mercy, you have triumphed over
baptized they've been prayed for by our ministry team they're going to come up here i'm going to ask each person to just share briefly uh, why they are responding in baptism today and so um, i want you to listen for that and then as they go into the water would you pray into into that into the thing that they shared and this act of obedience they're taking today this is part of us being the 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 spiritual family on mission together okay and then again when they come out of the water you cheer we cheer okay so come on up Can you share your name and why you're here today? I'm Andy. Andy. Monica. Do you want to be baptized today? Yes. Do you know what, why do you want to be baptized? Because he's my Lord and Savior. Lord and Savior. That's it right there. Uh, why are you going? 
My name is Al. So why uh, why I'm come here? So I uh, the Lord is my King, and He is my Savior. And Al Al's also Dad. This, yes. coming today and I want to baptize because I believe Jesus and Lord and my Savior. He's died for us and he's still alive. Thank you. 
Yeah, my name is uh, Nankin Ewin. Uh, today I'm coming to the I believe that Jesus. So, so I wait the water. Yeah.
is part of that old man would stay down below in that new resurrection whole man would come alive and you would come up out of that water free full of your power full of your spirit full of your love and able to be who you call him to be so Sean this morning as we baptize you we are going down and that old man is staying there that new man is being resurrected alongside of Christ I'm Gage, and I'm here because I love God, and I know He loves me. That's right. Amen. today because I was angry for so long, but I'm not anymore. I'm really excited.
so much in us. You, you restore us to the people, the, the men and the women that you intended us to be. Lord, I thank you for the things you're replacing in church. Lord, as you're removing things uh, in her life, then you're going to replace them uh, with your, your virtues, Lord, with your kindness, with your love, with your compassion, with your joy. Lord, I thank you for the gifts that you have set uh, in motion already in church's life, Lord. You are her, her deliverer, you have been her deliverer, and you will be her deliverer. So, Lord, we, uh, we are just uh, acknowledging the work that you are doing in churches like this morning. We're acknowledging that you have been the one who sought her, that has found her, that loves her, and that has called her to this moment in her life right here now. He has set eternity in your heart, eternity in your soul, a future that is good and full of blessing. and I'm here because everyone here is so heartwarming and welcoming and I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for the work that you've done in Madison's heart to draw her to the 
my name's Novali, and I'm here to get baptized. What does it mean to you today? Uh, this is the first time I've gone to church in a while, and I felt compelled to get baptized. April and this is new beginnings for me and I love God.
batting cleanup. My name is Mark, and um, I'm getting baptized today because I want to renew my spirits with God. introduce yourself and share with uh, everybody uh, what this is about for you today. My name is Jose. It's been 14 years since I went back to church. Coming from a Catholic church, I just turned my back on God, but now with the help of friends and family, got my faith back in here. Four weeks sober, and I hope I can continue with the grace of God.
second ballot. You're just sitting there changing your clothes. or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.